Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-founder, John Coogan. Hi, David. And our esteemed investor, Mr. David Lee. Good to, good to be here. As always, I feel short and uh, <laughs> scrawny next to you two, but um, so it is what it is. So you uh, have had uh, already a long and successful career in venture capital, um, so maybe uh, you could just kind of, for, for those who might not know you, um, do a kind of a brief bio spiel about yourself. Sure. So uh, my name's David Lee. Uh, I'm an investor in Lucy um, through our firm Refactor Capital, $50 million venture capital firm, invest in uh, companies solving, as we like to say, fundamental human problems. Um, you, what you did at Soylent was actually uh, an inspiration for starting the firm because we saw people like yourselves do these stupid, wacky things that turned <laughs> out to be wild successes, and we realized that this that you show us the future. Um, all joking aside, that's that's the business of VC is you invest in people. Um, where you feel a little uncomfortable because they show you what's next. And so before Refactor, um, I ran a firm called SV Angel. Um, during that time, we invested in a lot of the companies you'll hear of today, uh, Snap, Pinterest, Airbnb, Dropbox, uh, Stripe, um, Soylent is another company, Harry's. We also invested in a lot of companies that weren't those companies, so it's very much a hits-driven business, and it was also investing during a time which arguably was certainly the best, if not the easiest time to be a venture capitalist, because it was the greatest ramp of adoption and technology in the U.S. that we've ever seen. Um, before that, I worked... Wh what years are you talking about for that? That was around... 2007, 2008 to about 2015. You think about it, what iPhone launches 2008. Before that, people are online at their desktops maybe two or three hours a day. And then in a matter of five years, you have 60% of the country that is on their phone 24 hours a day to the point that it's now an addiction. And yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you just, you never, I don't think we've ever seen that as um, you know, just as a technology phenomenon, at least in the U.S. So it's interesting that you use the word addiction because we've been seeing apps like Facebook accused of having addictive properties similar to drugs. Right. And that some of the neuroscience shows that when people will get a like on Instagram or something, the dopamine in their brain gets really similar to as if they had a drug that was affecting them in, in just the same way. So... Um, how have you guys looked at your tech investments now sort of through that lens? Um, do you think of them as these kind of addictive entities as similar to a drug? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I guess the easy answer is I've never really thought about it because you could argue that after Snap, you know, certainly there's some others, Musical.ly, TikTok, um, at least in the U.S., again, I'm... I'm a little older, so I'm not really a target demographic, but I can't think of any app that is um, that users have shifted to their first screen after Snap. You know what I mean? Like that just reached the mainstream zeitgeist, like everybody knows it, or a key demographic mm -hmm. um, uses it every day. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the apps that um, 
really fall into that category where you're looking for that dopamine feedback, you're looking for that um, short-term hit. Um, so it, it honestly hasn't been relevant for me um, since like 2015 or 16. And I would say that's the case for most investors. I'd be hard-pressed to think of any app that has any new app post 2016 that has that that impact got it um so then kind of shifting gears for a second you mentioned that there was a huge wave of tech uh explosion kind of in the earlier stage of your career and now we see a lot of venture capital firms uh investing in consumer goods companies um like this company um how do you how have you seen that kind of shift i mean what percent of your portfolio do you try to allocate towards consumer or do you not think about it that way? I don't really think about it that way, but I do, I mean, I wasn't just joking when you were saying, when I said you guys were an inspiration, but if you looked at what Soylent did, which created a company really started by, you know, Rob and both of you, and um, where you s sort of applied some of the things you've learned in technology um, to a consumer product. And some of it was marketing, some of it was science, some of it was how you built the business. Um, and that was a template for a lot of companies, I think, who have built, particularly in the food area. Um, and, and most importantly, I think part of, the th part of the piece that was overlooked was you built a community of rabid users. And that was a, a template that could be used that a lot of traditional brands and CPG companies haven't used. Um, so to in some sense, when we see that, um, so we do have companies, a company Kin Therapeutics that you're that you're familiar with, which is a nootropic-based drink um, that gives a similar feeling to alcohol, um, or a frozen food company. You'll see some of that, but in the end, um, it's a food company or it's a CPG company, and you're going to have a different. The market is going to apply a different multiple to that. Um, so we, as quote unquote technology investors, we just have to be cognizant it in terms of when we invest, i.e. at what stage, and how we think about um, how the company may develop and what sort of capital it may need after that. Because a CPG company need, has different capital requirements than SpaceX or even a software company. Sure, so is that to say that you said you know VC is a hits-driven business, so if a CPG company uh, will probably never get like a 30X revenue multiple, um, unless Impossible Foods recently did for their IPO, but... Um, that was Beyond Meat, but yeah. Oh, Beyond Meat, that's right. Um, and so would you think about these consumer companies as maybe being more likely to work, having like less of a binary outcome? Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I, I still think it's binary um, in terms of uh, you can look back and say, hey, here are the reasons why, you know, Wrigley Gum or you know, Warby Parker or you name whatever brand it is and you're like, oh, here are the reasons why it was successful um, when a lot of it was, there are substitutes, you know, there are substitutes for Wrigley Gum or Warby Parker. I was an investor in Warby Parker or even Lucy. And so it's different from technology where particularly technologies that are driven, where the industry is driven by network effects where there are no substitutes. I mean, for all intents and purposes, there are no substitutes to Google. Mm -hmm. There are no substitutes to Facebook, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's a hits-driven business in that 
don't know what's going to really hit from a brand, uh, product, timing perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is binary in that sense. And in some ways, um, it, it's very, very different than technology because very few consumer brands, it's hard to create leverage, i.e. in software, in a software-driven business, you can create leverage that is, you know, a little bit of input creates a lot of output, and that's just the nature of software. It's not clear you can do that with, with goods and services. Yeah, and also there's kind of a lack of network effects when it comes to consumer packaged goods. Um, so that kind of goes back to that idea of community. That community kind of is your network effect to some, to some effect. Exactly, and oh, go ahead. Um, but uh, I wanted to follow up there because uh, one part of technology venture capital is so much finding the next hundred billion dollar exit the the next facebook the next google and we've seen a few of these within our lifetime um and there's been kind of a steady march from your apple to your microsoft to your google to amazon facebook do you think that there's but we've never really seen anything like that happen in consumer packaged goods it seems like a great outcome is uh, a vitamin water four billion dollars to a coca-cola or you know a, a multi-billion dollar exit but we really haven't seen that that $50 billion IPO come out of consumer packaged goods. Do you think that it's possible that we'll see a consumer packaged goods company come along that just has the right mix of technology and, and community and brand that will truly disrupt a PNG or a Unilever? Or do you think that's just, there's something structural going on and, and it just won't work in the next couple of decades? I mean, it, uh, never say never, but I, I, I think it's... Um, you know, I have a rule. I think businesses tend to gravitate to the multiple of their industry. Yeah. So if you're a software company, there are other software companies out there that have 20% after-tax margins that are growing 100% year over year. And so you look at that, and then you think about the addressable markets, and you go, oh, you know what? This could be 10x what it was even five years ago. Um, in... CPG or consumer goods like your margins are your margins and by that I mean it's like if you're in if you're selling uh, a beverage you're that industry is very different from the software industry and so I think to say that this company could be a company for example a beverage company could be a 10 20 30 billion dollar company um, there are just a lot of assumptions in that. And there are yeah. assumptions I'm not really comfortable with. And so yeah, for yeah. me, I look at it and I say, in my business, if there is a billion dollar exit or two billion, that to me is a $10 billion exit for that type of product. Um, and that's just because I, I think trees don't grow to the sky. I think, that, And I think that's what you'll hear a lot of the chatter in venture capital when you see, you know, whether it's CPG companies or you know, these sort of digitally native vertical brands that are getting funded. And and some of the detractors will say, you know, at some point, you know, at, at $2 billion, if somebody's betting that it's going to go to $6 billion, there aren't many, and I'm just using examples, you know, five, $10 billion companies in that category. That is, the demand isn't necessarily elastic. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what do you think about these multiples that these cannabis companies are getting lately? Well, um, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it, I haven't been paying too much attention to it, but it's, I mean, again, 
that's a lot of it is the regulatory arbitrage understanding sort of what's going to happen on the regulatory and legal front mm -hmm. um because and it's i think it's it's something i haven't seen in my career because what you're seeing is the demand is certainly there mm -hmm. um but you have this overhang particularly in the u.s of what's going to happen um you know federally and then with respect to the 50 states well so on that note we were just talking earlier about uh, psilocybin yep and how the decriminalization uh, in Denver has just kind of surprised everybody a little bit um, what would it take I guess to make you guys at refactor comfortable investing in a cannabis company or a psilocybin company I think um a couple of things, and I, w you know, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but, you know, when you pitched us, I, I didn't really know any, I know, knew nothing about nicotine. I obviously knew it was bad for you when it's delivered through tobacco, mm -hmm. and but I was just like, and you educated us, mm -hmm. and you got us excited about the opportunity, and I think I would look for something similar, and I would also look for something. Um, the founders would have to understand, they would have to understand the world they live in, not the world they want to live in. In the mm -hmm. world they live in, there's a ton of legal and regulatory uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to navigate around that? And if, if the founder didn't have um, a unique or interesting approach around that, I would, I'd sort of shrug my shoulders. But... I, so it would probably be two or threefold. First, the founder would have to come. I would have to m sort of meet a founder or a set of founders who got me interested and excited about the subject matter, even though I knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And then I would have to see a unique um, angle around that that area that showed me they were really thinking about something. Because that's, you know, it's the secret hiding in plain sight. Everybody knows that hey, if this weren't here, this would be a gold rush. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's something I would have to see is a real awareness. Um, Workaround is not the right way to put it, but somebody who just understands the environment and, and can demonstrate to us that the timing is right given that environment because I don't have a staff of lawyers who can inform me as to whether or not the timing is right. So is that how you think about investments kind of in a, in a general sense too, that you try to identify the largest existential threat to the business and then decide can the founder solve this existential threat? No, I think it, it, it really depends on the area. I think in this particular area, if I were to pattern match, that's how I would think about it. And it's because uh, of working with you um, that, and that it made a lot of sense in other areas. So we talked about consumer apps. You don't have that, um, you don't have that overhang. You may have an existential threat of Facebook, Google, Amazon, so forth. But generally speaking, you don't really see a lot of founders compete with those companies in those companies' core business. Like, if you don't see many startups come to us, well, maybe now, and say, hey, I'm looking to build a new social network. You didn't see that in 2012. Um, but they were thinking about things that Facebook maybe had on their roadmap, but weren't one of the top two things Facebook had. And in that sort of scenario, I don't think of the existential threat. So the existential, so it, it really depends on the startup and the set of founders and the situation mm -hmm. um, because all of the risks are, are, are different. Gotcha. 
Um, so another kind of interesting business that uh, you've been spending time on or collection of business is crypto. Um, you might have noticed that Bitcoin is um, doing pretty well today. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, you know, in the past when we've had the chance to, to talk about crypto a little bit, you have an interesting, I think, philosophy that uh, I believe you said that you think that crypto's future may not even be in Silicon Valley. Yes. I mean, by that, I mean, uh, at least in the short term, I mean, one of the things that you learn um, as an investor and spending a lot of time with founders is that the founders really have to be close to whoever it is that using their product. And at least for me, I, I don't like in the U.S. I don't really see the reason why you would need. Maybe now the timing is changing a little bit, but for all intents and purposes, credit wa credit cards work pretty well, like the payment systems. And but if you go in different parts of the country. Uh, or excuse me, different parts of the world, they don't have what we have. It's not easy to get a credit card. It's not easy to open a banking account. You have hyperinflation. I mean, it all sounds like a, it's, it's, this is all a cliche to people who work in crypto, but if you don't live in one of those countries or you're not in one of those environments, it's just a punchline, just a tagline. It's just another theoretical concept. And so you kind of have to feel it and live it every day. And that's and you even see it from. So I think there's that piece of it, um, of being closer to your users. And I think the second piece is the regulatory piece. Um, you know, when I worked at the analogy I always use is that when I worked at Google, we worked on Google Video. We were competing against YouTube and we saw how that worked out. And part of the the existential threat or the climate was that we had advertisers that were spending literally billions of dollars with us you know cbs nbc disney and they see copyrighted content on the site and they're going to make a ceo to ceo phone call i'm not saying that that happened and just say what's going on and so you saw google video google strike all these major partnerships to get content on their site youtube meanwhile ironically the more conservative legal approach because of the DMCA, they just went ahead and they just said, copyright, you know, partnerships be damned. And, you know, we all know how the story un unfolded. Similarly, in the US, I think the approach has been to really work with and comply with regulators. And you have to, you just, there's no way around it. Whereas in other parts of the world, I'm not saying they don't comply with regulators, but there is a little bit more regulatory arbitrage. There's a company, Binance, that's really successful, and the CEO just lives in a suitcase, and he's not running, he's not on the lamb. he's just going to his distributed teams throughout the world. So and what so is the advantage there from the regulatory perspective that he's able to enjoy? Well, he's able to launch certain products that um, may or may not run afoul of US securities laws if you were to launch them in the US, the tokens and trading and so forth. Gotcha. And so um, uh, so I think if, you know, you guys are engineers, yeah. initial conditions matter, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the initial conditions are such that you see a certain amount of activity in this part of the world and in the other parts of the world, it's, it's 10X in terms of the engagement on a consumer, and not necessarily developer level, then then you have to, you can sort of, it's not a prediction, but um, you just look at it and say, hey, 
it could very well be the case that a lot of the innovation and adoption happens in other parts of the world other than the U.S. Yeah, I remember hearing someone make the case that Detroit should take pretty radical steps to legalize essentially all testing of self-driving cars so they could kind of reinvigorate the auto industry there. Yep. Um, and you know, while other cities and municipalities were being more conservative, they could kind of draw all of that testing and innovation to back to Detroit. It's kind of a similar idea where, you know, if a foreign government is saying, well, yeah, we'll, we'll give, you know, the most cutting edge crypto technology a try and we will, you know, work with these entrepreneurs that they're going to draw some talent. And it sounds like that's kind of what's happening. Yeah. And you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, you know, the U.S. it's it's falling behind, and certainly I think they're, you know, from the bleacher seats, uh, you know, it's easy to have an opinion, hard to make a decision. You can say, hey, we should be a little bit more forward thinking in how we're approaching this area. We can't take, you know, a set of laws created in 1933 and 1934 and apply them to this whole new architecture and financial system. But you also, it's also a, you know, it's. It's a it's a problem that's complex by like n orders of magnitude versus other parts of the world. Just because everything you have to deal with in the U.S. the different constituents, the coordination costs, the jurisdictional issues, so um, it, it's tough. It so on on that topic of, of government regulation, then um, how do you feel about um, some of these uh, politicians now who are calling for the breakup of of big tech? Um, because it seems like some of the critiques uh, of that have been that uh, the laws were written a long time ago to define monopolies were really for like railroads essentially. You know, tech and Google is much more complicated uh, than say a railroad. Um, do you have a personal opinion on that? Uh, I, and this is where like my, uh, as a very average law student, um, <laughs> The only thing I remember from law school, funny enough, is because I took an antitrust class during the Microsoft trial. Mm -hmm. The only thing I remember is you got to show consumer harm mm -hmm. if you bring any sort of antitrust action, mm -hmm. right? And uh, under the current U.S. Regu regulatory system, right, mm -hmm. under the current law, you have to show consumer harm. So if I were Google or Facebook or... Amazon, that's the first thing you go to. Mm -hmm. We might be a monopoly. Where's the harm? Mm -hmm. People in Ohio, people in red states, they, they, they like Google. You know, people, they like Facebook. How, how frequently are they ch checking Facebook? Mm -hmm. Similarly, Amazon. So whether or not, and I, I don't have the strongest view, um, but you know, I'm a Google apologist because I used to work there and I have a lot of friends there. Sure. Um, but uh, I think under current U.S. law, it's almost a moot point until, unless and until you change um, the framework. Uh, but I, I think it'll be politically, candidates will use it as a way to rally their base or for political reasons, but it's not clear to me that I see that happening. Maybe Facebook. Also, a lot of antitrust cases are built upon, as you said, consumer harm, but it's very hard to prove consumer harm when the product is free or near to free. So a product like Google, which for most consumers is free, it's really hard to say, 
usually monopoly power is used to raise prices in the classical economic model you have you know you have complete pricing control so you can raise price demand is constant and you reap more profits but that's not really what's going on when we say google or facebook are, are acting in a monopolistic way yeah so I it's very hard to prove consumer harm when you say well if we had two competitors for google would the price to the consumer be lower no it would be the same because it's already a free service essentially and i should probably i mean I, I, it, and this is where being a mediocre law student comes into play is that <laughs> i don't remember like consumer harm is a big piece of it certainly in the microsoft trial and i think if advertisers wanted to um sort of coordinate and bring suit against google or facebook um, you could do that or, you know, right. I think there was a case today where the Supreme Court let an antitrust case move against or proceed against Apple, although I think that was more on procedural grounds than on the merits. Um, so uh, so it, it may not be that consumer that you need to like poll people and people need to be upset about Google or Facebook that you could do you could bring action using different means um but certainly i i'm less um i view that less as a threat than maybe some others because i think it would take a lot to actually for this to come to fruition got it and um maybe there's a way that there are companies that will be able to compete with you know the advertising you know monopoly or duopoly that is facebook and google i saw that uh, I think I saw from your Twitter stream that you recently downloaded the Brave yes. browser. Yes. So the basic attention token kind of crypto platform, do you think that that has a, a chance of, of succeeding in sort of their intended um, stated purpose of paying consumers to watch ads? I hope so. I mean, it's, it's um, I hope it's an alternative, but, um, and I guess I'm contradicting myself. Maybe there should be action because but the you know the heft of what Google and Facebook and other advertising systems bring in terms of um, obviously advertisers, relationship with publishers, which are the websites we browse. Um, I, I, do I see that happening in even five years? I, I don't see that flicker yet in terms of um, you know when Google started in 2003 or 2002, excuse me, with AdWords. I mean, the, the advertisers and the publishers just sort of poo-pooed it. Um, so anything can happen. So that's taken, what, uh, ten, it probably took about five to seven years for those to be the dominant platforms. Um, but uh, but I haven't seen that, that sort of flicker of, uh, um, of demand just yet. Gotcha. Cool, cool. Should we do a lightning round? Yeah, that sounds great. Great. Um, so we're going to read some questions, and uh, for this, just kind of say the first thing that comes to your mind, maybe one sentence answer. Um, let's go through this. So what was your first job? I got fired from selling sheets at a flea market. I was <laughs> selling linens, and okay. I got fired because I – you didn't ask me why I got fired, but yeah, yeah, it was my now. first job. I got fired because I, I, told, the co I told them that – I, I basically told a white lie, okay. and they caught me, and I said, okay, you know, and then I got another job, I think. It happens. It happens. So, so um, <laughs> obviously, there are a ton of venture-backed 
speaking of sheets, uh, linen companies and mattress companies, what brand is your mattress? It's not venture-backed. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, uh, my wife, we we did it old school yeah. in that we just went into the mattress, mattress store, store we found something one. that was overpriced okay. and yeah <laughs> we have we have a tuft and needle or a casper in our in our guest oh, room though guest room. and Got people it. love it okay uh do you use lyft or uber uber okay um only because uh, out of habit not out of yeah. any sort of uh when you when you wake up on that, on that comfortable overpriced bed what's the first thing that you do when you wake up uh, i hate to say it but Check my phone, although with I try to drink water. Water sure, sure. drinking water is a big thing for me. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so when you check your phone, what was the last social media app that you opened? Today I was on Instagram with the belated Happy Mother's Day oh, post good. for okay. my wife yeah, one yeah. day late. So I s- said it was stuck in the drafts. Still good. Um, <laughs> what was the last country you visited? Uh, Korea last year. How was year. that? It was great. It Where'd was great. Go? We went to Seoul and Seoul. Was we went this to Seoul. <laughs> business or pleasure or both? A little bit of both. Cool. It, we, I went for, um, for a conference, a crypto conference, and then my wife and our, our children went as well. We, visit, we went with some friends and visited some family. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in the VC community say aspiring entrepreneurs should learn to code. That's kind of the first skill that people say. Um, if somebody already knows how to code, what's the one skill they should learn after that? Read. Read. You should. I think reading is more important than coding. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Gr- I, yeah. I, I. I generally think reading. I think coding. Just absorbing information. Yeah, and learning how to think. Coding is just a proxy for learning how to think critically and logically. That makes a lot of sense. And so, if you, and I think learning Python today is yeah. going to be obsolete. Sure. In sure as obsolete as type. I think coding is going to be like um, typing. Yeah. It's going to be obsolete, but learning how to think critically yeah. and logically and structurally, yeah. that is, that's the most important thing. And that's what reading does, in yeah, my yeah. opinion. Certain types of reading, maybe not what I read. Yeah, that makes yeah. No sense. Do you have something to Yeah, so what VC trend uh, do you hate? It's uh, a tough one. There are a lot. And <laughs> I, I've done them all. Yeah. Um, VC trend that I hate. I think it's the um, when a f- when a company does something well. Yeah. And there's like, and the investor. I've done it a lot. Yeah. So, pot calling the kettle black. But you're like, either fishing for or basically generating attention to yourself like you had something to do with it and then the vcs are congratulating the other vcs it's like it's not even the head coach of a football team congratulating another head coach it's like it's like an investor in the team (laughs) publicly saying you did it you won a championship to another investor in another team and you're like what are you talking about like anyways so that's the piece that and it's not just because there have been a flurry of exits and yeah, especially recently. And so that's been more pronounced, yeah. but I've always felt like, and the, and the really great VCs yeah. you'll see, they do none of that. Yeah. Just like you see a great football coach. Of course, I'm a Patriots fans like yeah, yeah. Bill Belichick. When the team wins, it's all about the players. Yeah. When the team loses, he's like, I didn't do a good job. Sure. Sure. Now the VCs don't do that, <laughs> but yeah. the elite VCs, yeah. 
when a one of their companies does well, there's not a lot. Yeah. There's not a lot of look at me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that's and believe me, I've done it. So it's not like yeah. I'm above it. Of course. Um how do you feel about um there being more VC firms uh than ever? <sighs> I mean the one thing that um to each his own or her own um and but one thing that i will say when you see more competition you realize um luck matters more and more it's because when competition increases it's harder to just be better than everybody else hmm. and it be literally becomes game of inches and in a game of inches environment one has to grind and grind and grind for that extra yard. I'm probably dating myself. It's any given Sunday. There's yeah, this yeah. football movie. It's, great movie. it's it, man. Like, I, I tell people, I'm like, listen, do you want to win a gold medal or do you want to win the Super Bowl? If you want to win the gold medal, the gold you win in men's luge is just as gold as the one you win in men's basketball. They're, <laughs> si they're still singing the national anthem when you're standing on top. You want to win the Super Bowl? It's like... My Patriot, the Patriots have been there, like they've lost or won on like fingertip catches. Sure, and that's part of it. It's like you get that's what you enjoy is that game of inches stuff. But I do think that's the piece that's lost is that once this bull market dies down, people will realize. And you talk to any great venture capitalist. I was just talking to one, like great. I mean, who has been doing it for more than five years, <laughs> like. And I'm being facetious. They are grinders. Sure. They do the same thing over and over and over again. And the part that was really fun and sexy in the beginning, mm -hmm. I'm meeting founders, yeah. I'm helping to, it gets, that part, they're still doing the stuff that, you know, that part becomes less, it's still fun, but the glamour ways wears off. And then it just becomes, you got to grind. And you have to enjoy the grind. And it's almost like, that movie, Hero Dreams of Sushi, right? It's like oh, you yeah. have to enjoy the, like trying to get good. It's not about doing what you love. It's about you know loving what you do or learning to love what you do because not everybody loves what they do. That you, just, you almost have to learn how to do that. So I don't know, but for all those VCs that are starting, you have to think now this is not seed investing in 2006 when I started. There were maybe five funds that did what we did, yeah. right? So if you are Dropbox or Airbnb, you have two or three choices after Y Combinator. Now these companies come out and you have 700, 800. So if you're on the other side of that and you're one of the 700, 800, it's game of inches. And that is really, it's a, it's a grind. So another investing related question. Do you have a, uh, what are, there's there's a word for it that uh, in VCs use in terms of um, investments that they could have invested in but passed it's on. Like the anti-portfolio. Anti-portfolio. Do you have um, w you know an example of a company that you know you keeps you up at night, slapping your head saying I should have. I think the only one. one that keeps this is a lie. Well, the only one that <laughs> the ones that one, keep yeah. you up at night aren't the ones that are wildly successful because that's the lie part. The ones that keep you up at night are the ones where you're like, if I had the same information, like did I make a mistake? 
sure. in my process with what I knew at the time. So one example is Uber. Like I worked for Garrett Camp at StumbleUpon. Um, we eventually sold to eBay, and then he was he was one of the founders mm -hmm. of Uber. He pitched Uber to me, and it was somebody else was running it. It was his idea, though. Yeah, yeah. And some investor once told me, you like never do that because you right. can't outsource passion where one per it's one person's idea and it's another person's um, another person's running it. Yeah. And fucking apparently you can outsource <laughs> passion <laughs> is what yeah, I tell I people. Mean, I'm yeah. like, I wouldn't be sitting here, you know, I'd be <laughs> I'd be out in, you know, yeah, you uh, on my yacht it. somewhere or something. I'm kidding. But yeah. but even that I look back on it and that would have been a life changing thing. But um, you're like. W w w with the same information that I had, with the same fr framework that I had, and s would I have made the same decision seven times out of ten? And if the answer is yes, then you're like, it really sucks. And yeah, there are days when you know you're banging the shoe against your head, but that happens. A and as a good friend once told me, if you spend too much time doing that, you're making the you're you're making the funnest job bad hmm. <laughs> you know it's, yeah yeah it seems like a lot of vc is you got to know the rules and then you got to know when to break them because I exactly in that scenario i know like uber they i mean even the first version of their code base was written by like a bunch of developers in a foreign country yeah like and never outsource your developer and, and that's yeah that's, that's you know, silicon valley you like know the architect and the yeah. contractor have to be one exactly. they have to be part of the founding team yeah, all that bullshit that, that wasn't and it's like the true I'm, I'm not saying it's bullshit no, but it's just it's not a hundred percent of the time yeah and so one of the things that i learned from that is that is you can't really impose any framework or yeah. rules onto any situation that every every company is different so you have to at least try to be a good listener yeah um and it seems like it's it's probably dangerous to think that there are any like it's probably really easy to say okay if i see any of these red flags i'm out because then i can move on with my life i can talk to the next entrepreneur continue my deal flow and move on but having too rigid of a framework might actually cause you to miss something yeah You'll be shocked. I mean, yeah, and it's, um, you know, Jack Dorsey starting Square. And, yeah. you know, when he started at the time, I think the archetype for somebody doing payments was this yeah. brainy nerd sitting there just like, how do I get the volume? How do I yeah. arb the volume? Da, 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 da. And, and Jack is not that person. No. And look at what he's done with Square. And so yeah. um, that is – but that's different in that he had done Twitter, so you're like sure. he could be doing, you know – uh, you know any company and I yeah, think he would have yeah. gotten some interest but definitely. at the time there were definitely investors where there were a ton of skepticism because yeah. that he didn't fit that archetype yeah yeah um, yeah that, that and if that Jack's having a hard time then yeah. think of your average founder yeah definitely yeah okay another few lightning round questions and then would you want to move on yeah, to yeah you do can you go to the bottom disagree? sure okay um, another lightning round question do you have a skill that you feel like uh, is better than the average? It can be very weird, or it could be very foundational. I think, uh, I don't know if it's a skill, but I've done a lot of different things, and I've been around a lot of different people. And so I was a lawyer. I grew up in... 
you know, was the only, for all intents and purposes, you know, grew up in the northeast of America in Boston, and they're like, they're liberal and to your face, but they're, you know, whatever it is, I was the only Asian that grew up there. Assimilation was very important. I was a lawyer. I went to graduate school, spent a lot of time with engineers. Um, just my personality, I've sort of floated in a lot of different social circles. And so I think there, rapport's maybe not the right word because I don't know if the other person likes me, but I think I can, I think I can, we like, like you. Yeah, that's, that's a good start. Um, I think I can, I can um, acclimate and almost build with in a lot of different environments. And I think that's helpful for certain it's been helpful because when you meet people from different walks of life or that are pursuing different things um it's helpful to try to build that rapport as an investor or in any profession um and so that i think has been helpful um uh i don't know if it's a skill but it's probably more function of just my life experiences gotcha yeah that makes sense um well, now we're going to ask you some agree or disagree questions. All right. Um, agree or disagree, you need a co-founder. Disagree. Okay. John asked this one. You need to code. Um, this is, I think, probably for entrepreneurs. You can't have a significant other. Disagree. Yeah, these were, uh, you have to meditate. Disagree. <laughs> Although I meditate, the you can't have a significant am i dating myself with the untouchables reference did you guys ever, guys ever watch yeah. Untouchables? I mean the the movie about uh prohibition yeah. yeah yeah and when kevin costner looks to hire andy garcia and he's like do you have a wife do you have a girlfriend and he's right. like no yeah. no he's like you're hired yeah <laughs> i'm not that guy but i'm not kevin costner um i think that's silly i think do you need to meditate i disagree i don't to any of these questions, I don't think you need to do anything. <laughs> like, I don't, like, I, in other words, like, do you need a co-founder? Is it helpful? Does the stats show it's helpful? Yeah, but, you know, there are a lot of companies. Do you need to code? There are plenty of startups. It, it, for sure, it's a weapon if, and if you're starting a company in, like, um, that's, like, Palantir, it'd be, it'd be nice to code, but... <laughs> But you don't need to have that. You look at, uh, you know, some of the great companies, especially here in L.A. Um, by that, I mean companies that are doing amazing things that are that might be in retail or or that might be commercial successes. And coding is not their 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 strong suit. Sure, sure. Do you need to have a significant you can't have a significant other. I think that's stupid. Whoever <laughs> if anyone who <laughs> says that is like what? bad investor <laughs> yeah the coding part and the co-founder part i could see like people having feeling pretty strongly about that but the significant others stupid the meditation i meditate i think it's helpful but you don't have to meditate i think that's ridiculous so it's sorry not that your questions are bad no no no, <laughs> no this is uh designed to provoke a response yeah. so um i guess you know one one question that we still wanted to ask is um, people, uh, our, our podcast guests come from uh, a wide range of kind of careers and industries. And so um, 
we got a little bit of a sense of your investment philosophy, but can you maybe provide some advice to someone who may be younger who's interested in one day becoming an investor? I think um, if you want to be an investor, uh, your job is to be curious about if you're doing your job is to be curious depending on your type of investing there are all, all different types there's you know you could be a trader you could be a Warren Buffett you could be a venture capitalist so I'm just gonna stick with venture capital in venture capital you have to be your job is to be curious not just about technology but about people and the elite venture capitalists are both right and even really great venture capitalists have maybe like an a plus in one and a b plus and you know an a minus in the other but if you're not a curious person you have to learn how you have like especially the second part if you're not curious about people you're gonna burn out because you're gonna deal with a ton of founder issues and if being curious about per somebody I think in a really authentic way, it just, it fosters empathy. You're like, you're curious about the other person's movie. Like what's going on in their head? Like what's, what are their experiences? Why are they experiencing what they're experiencing now? And that can help. That's what, you know, you, you know this better than I, that's what a founder wants. They don't want advice. They don't want, oh, this is what, you know, it's gonna be fine. They, they kind of just want you to listen and, through that being able to tell stories. And because the founders are the best, are, they're the only people that are qualified to make really important decisions about the company because they're the only ones who have full context, information, history. And so therefore they're really the only ones that are even qualified to use intuition. You're only qualified to use intuition when you have all of that. And if you're not curious about the person you're just going to be giving advice. Oh, I saw this. You're going to pattern match. I don't really. Oh, you're, you're. And that, I think, wears thin. And um, and I think you mentioned a ton of venture capitalists. I don't think this is. You just have to be ridiculously competitive as well. You know, in this environment of game of inches, you're now like, it, it's just, it's not public market investing where all the information is out there. You just have to be really there's just a lot of really, really talented people doing exactly what you're doing, looking for exactly what you're looking for in that environment. If you're not competitive, you're just going to lose, right? And um, I call it the three eyes. So uh, it's like to start a firm, you need – well, to be a, a great technology investor, I think you need the three eyes. You need great information, great insight, and a great interface, to start a firm or to become an investor, you need an edge in one of the first two. You either have a better info, and that basically means you have a better network. So it's like you're a Googler in 2007, Facebook 2010, early Y Combinator, um, but that decays over time because those networks grow stale, people get older, the networks become re more re less relevant. So you have to refresh that over and over and over again. Not many people do that. And the second piece is insight. You just have to be smarter than everybody else. 
right? It's either you're like you're doing crypto in 2017, or you're doing mobile in 2009, or um, you know whatever trendy or impo important technologies, on, and you're just the expert, right? Um, or you have a an investment strategy that other people just don't have. It could be YC when they just took common stock. It could be uh, you know, DST when they took common stock at the later round. But again, that will decay over time. Firms will either get their experts or your strategy will be copied. But you need one of those two, mm. I think, to really get your foot in the door. And then the third part, the interface is the substrate. If founders don't like working with you or you have a bad reputation, you're done, right? If you have that, that's how you maintain the flywheel because if you have a good reputation among founders, you're going to get better deal flow. When you get better deal flow, your insights become better, and then it just that's when it starts. But if you don't have those three eyes and the second eye in particular, the, the last piece, the interface, um, for long-term success, it's going to be really hard. But a young person aspiring, I just say, just get super curious about a topic. And it's usually easier on the insight piece. There's one person um, that I met through Twitter, and the guy is just ridiculously smart. His insights uh, on some of these companies are just off the charts. And now he's interviewing at some of the top firms in, um, in Silicon Valley, and he was just a regular person in Michigan tweeting about certain topics. And so that is inspiring that you don't necessarily have to be a part of the it crowd, mm -hmm. but generally speaking, you know, the starting point is you just have to be unbelievably curious. Awesome. That's a great answer. I think yeah. we're good there. That's perfect. That's a really nice way to end it. All right. Yeah. Thank well, you so much for joining us. Sure. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Yeah.